Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're building on our discussion of gothic horror with a look at Mario Barber's 1966 gothic chiller, Kill Baby Kill. But before we get into all that murderous stuff, what is going on? So Matt, you're off on your um, holidays in January. Yeah, the closest I get to my annual holiday, the annual pilgrimage to Hunstanton for contingency. <laughs> yes, marvellous. Sunny honey is not sunny in January. Yes, what better time to go to the seaside than mid-January? <laughs> Will you be uh, in your beach shorts out on the sand? Oh, hell no. Will you be locked in a room for a week running games? Almost, although I'm, I'm being told this time repeatedly <laughs> by many people that I'm not going to be up to uh, running my normal wall-to-wall -wall gaming that I have in previous years because I, I just can't do it at the minute. I'm still quite... I tire out quite easily with some of the beds I'm still on and it just even moving about and exertion is a lot more for me in, in this last year. You know, you can take it easy and still enjoy yourself. Yeah. And now on to our main topic, Kill Baby Kill. You know the first thing that comes to mind about this film? The title. Yeah, we'll talk about that. I had to buy a, uh, a DVD for this because I couldn't find it on any of the major streaming services. And unlike many people, I still have a massive DVD collection. I like my DVDs. I like having physical media. <laughs> but yeah, the title, kill, comma, baby, dot, 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 kill, exclamation mark. <laughs> the DVD I've got is just the three words, kill, baby, kill, in big white letters splashed all over the box. <laughs> Mine, on the other hand, actually has the punctuation. Ah, there you go. Crazy. That's part of the big Mario Bartha box set that came out a number of years back. It just came to mind, just how do you actually enunciate? How do you actually convey the title the way it should be? Is it Kill Baby Kill or Kill a Baby Kill? <laughs> I think the way you do it is with a heavy sigh because whichever American studio executive decided to give it that title, just fuck them. <laughs> fuck them right in the ear. <laughs> I mean, they did their best to make it sound interesting. They failed. <laughs> we'll go over some of the other titles that it got lumbered with. Kill Baby to Kill, oddly enough, isn't the strangest title it's been given. Kill Me Now? <laughs> snore, baby, snore. But anyway. Following on from last episode's discussion of gothic horror, we thought we'd look at a film that really draws heavily upon the genre. The gothic is represented in horror cinema, and we were spoiled for choice when looking for examples. Still, it's hard to think of a filmmaker who is better exemplifies the gothic in film than Mario Bava. While Kill Baby, Kill may not be Bava's <laughs> best-known film, it has undergone something of a critical rediscovery in recent years. It stands out as the purest expression of the gothic aesthetic in his work. So let's take a look at the background of the film. So Kill Baby Kill is one of a number of gothic films that Mario Bava directed through the 1960s and 70s, but mainly the 60s. He started out with Black Sunday, which was his directorial debut, and then moved on to The Whip in the Body, Black Sabbath, and then later Barren Blood. He also is arguably responsible for starting the Giallo subgenre with his 1964 film Blood and Black Lace. 
And then I think really making one of the the weirdest giallo films in the 70s, uh, which is Bay of Blood, which is like Agatha Christie on acid. (laughs) Oh, so this definitely does not fit the giallo. (laughs) No. The film was released under a number of different names. Its original title is Operazione Pora, or Operation Fear. In the UK, it was titled Curse of the Dead for its initial release. The German title, weirdly, was Die Toten Organ de Dr. Dracula, The Dead Eyes of Dr. Dracula. A shortened version was released in the US as The Curse of the Living Dead. That's because putting Living Dead on any title automatically makes it better selling. You can't go wrong with The Living Dead. It was used as part of a, uh, I think, triple bill of films which had been re-edited and had Living Dead jammed in the title somehow to try to make them into something that would appeal to people at drive-ins. Of those titles, I think uh, Curse of the Dead is probably the one that Mm. actually fits Mm. the film the most. Yes. But yeah, Snore Baby Snore also is a, a fairly accurate title as well, but oh well. Or stare, baby, stare. Barva said of the film, I once made a film in 12 days as a bet with some Americans in which the ghost of a little girl appears to certain people and drives them to suicide. Nice happy film there. The film was improvised from a 30-page script that was written on the spot. Boy, does it fucking show. Later, an article was published that said this film earned a place for me in the history of cinema. And yeah, it does appear on an awful lot of uh, 100 best horror films and has appeared more and more on such lists over the years. And it's been credited as an influence by uh, Federico Fellini, uh, Nicholas Rogue, and um, particularly Martin Scorsese, who's a, a huge fan of it. In fact, Scorsese wrote a, an introduction for Tim Lucas's book on Mario Bava called All the Colors of the Dark. And he said, I can't count the number of times I've seen Kill Baby Kill, and every time it casts the same spell. It's a genuinely hypnotic piece of filmmaking, and it goes into a deeply unsettling direction that many filmmakers with bigger budgets and far greater resources have tried for, and few have managed to sustain or even find. Yeah, I mean, this was made on an absolute shoestring. They ran out of money during the production of it, is described as a cursed production and it's a wonder it ever got finished in the first place but yeah it's grown in fame considerably in the last 56 years you can definitely tell the shoestring budget because they reuse the same locations quite a bit oh yeah and now let's take a look at the story of kill baby kill Kill Baby Kill takes place in a decaying village in the Carpathian Mountains, filled with ruined buildings and dark secrets. Can you see what we mean when we said this was a gothic film? The film opens as a terrified young woman throws herself from the ruins of a church, impaling herself on metal spikes below. Yeah, that that was quite a gory scene for the mid-60s. I mean, not too explicit, but, you know, really quite bloody. An outsider, Dr. Esway, arrives by coach to perform an autopsy on the woman. He has been hired by Inspector Kruger, the local constable, who he meets at an inn. None of the locals seem especially happy to see the doctor. These locals are the kind of people that we see 
in The Ordeal and The Shadow of Rinsmouth, places like that, like kind of often remote kind of rural, well, semi-rural kind of locations away from uh, big metropolitan places where people are different. <laughs> so um, this is a local horror film for local people, damn it. Is this something with, that you use much, Scott, in your games, these uh, kind of sinister local villagers? If I use the trope, I tend to use it ironically or try to undermine it. I've I've never been a, a huge fan of the classic sinister local uh, stereotype. If I think about some of the settings I've used in games where they have been these rural isolated places, where the locals have been unwelcoming, they've always had good reason to do so. And I guess that's the case here as well, that it's not just that they're unwelcoming because this is someone coming in from outside, but they've got a pretty good reason to fear someone coming in and messing around with stuff. I've not ever really particularly used it repeatedly. I think I've maybe used it once, but again, there, there was a reason why they were doing it, that it was a very, very tight-knit community with a big secret they don't want anyone finding out about. But now, on, on the whole, I tend to make my villagers and my NPCs significantly up the uh, the level of, uh, if there was uh, me at one end and Dawood at the other, I'm very much saying me as <laughs> the, the polar opposite. My NPCs are friendly and not all out to get you. <laughs> That'll never catch on. And the coach driver actually thinking about NPCs. I mean, he he's a sort of classic one where he's there giving the initial info dump and it's sort of, oh, yeah, this is a spooky place and you don't want to visit here and you know, I'll drop you as close as I can. And it occurred to me as, as I was watching it again that that's lifted pretty much straight out of the beginning of Dracula, isn't it? Hmm. The locals' hostility only increases when they learn that the doctor is here to perform an autopsy. They've hastened to lay the corpse to rest. We do get these wonderful scenes of these pallbearers literally running across the landscape to the graveyard with the coffin bouncing across their shoulders. And the doctor makes his way to the graveyard and actually stops the gravediggers in mid-burial to rescue the body. If they don't do it by a certain time, then the poor deceased is going to complain in the afterlife and give them zero rating on the heavenly trust pilot. <laughs> One of the locals explains this haste. You know the dirt has to cover the body immediately before the sun rises. With its weight, the dirt embraces the dead and keeps it in the earth forever. Esway autopsies the body with the help of Monica, a nurse who has just returned to the village after leaving as a young child. They discover a silver coin embedded in the woman's heart. And yeah, that's a weird little bit to begin with, isn't it? Cutting this body up and you find like a sixpence in a plum pudding except in her heart. Almost reminds me of a certain Unknown Army scenario where there's a, a woman has bullets in her heart. Mm, I can't remember that one. Uh, a few of my favourite things, it's where the opening counter is the woman screaming, I'm a gun, I'm a gun, for every time that her heart's been broken. Oh, God, yes. Returning to the inn, Esway is attacked by angry locals who are upset at his desecration of this corpse. But before they can beat him up too badly, a strange woman in a black dress appears and scares them off apparently just by staring at them. Inspector Kruger, who I'm really wondering if his first name is Freddy, leaves a note for the doctor to meet him at the Villa Graps. Esway asks the innkeeper's daughter, Nadine, for directions. 
but she warns him that the villa is an evil place. We're getting all the gothic tropes in here, aren't we? The dire warnings, oh, you don't want to go to this place, and that's repeated even within the place now. Is sort of, yeah, it's bad enough going to the village, but you really, really don't want to go to this place. Nadine then sees the ghostly form of a young girl at the window, which terrifies her. Her parents call upon Ruth, the local witch, to save Nadine from the ghost's curse. When she arrives, we see that this is the mysterious woman in black who saved Dr. Esway from the angry mob. I think Ruth is a, a fairly unusual character for a film in a story like this. I'd say in a lot of films she'd perhaps be more antagonistic, but I can't think of too many gothic tales, at least not until you've got the more modern stuff, which is perhaps playing with gothic tropes. I don't think you've got too many where you've got witch characters like this who are portrayed as being sympathetic. I can think of, again, more modern examples. Mm. It also leans heavily into a trope that is already problematic as it stands, the, uh, the old magical black man stereotype character. I'm thinking of Papa Midnight and Constantine and things like that, where they, they're ultimately a mystical character that is ultimately on their side, but first appears like they might be more sinister or antagonistic. Yeah, I don't know if, if she's quite the same stereotype, but I can certainly see similarities. Yeah, with that first opening appearance, there is that hint that she could be something maybe antagonistic or at least maybe something mysterious or wrong. But as I say, later as you get through the film, that's revealed not to be the case. Ruth then scours the girl Nadine with thorns and ins then instructs her to wear a cilice, this barbed strap that's used for ritual mortification of the flesh. This is supposed to protect her from the curse. Esway is spying on this through a gap in the door and sees some of this and then confronts Ruth when she leaves. Ruth warns him against going to the villa, like everyone else does, but he doesn't listen, and appears afraid even to mention the name of the villa. And she then heads home, where she meets up with the Burgomaster, and we learn that the two of them are lovers. Yeah, I didn't realise until I was looking this up what a, a Solis was. It appears in the Da Vinci Code. That's where I know it from. <laughs> oh, right. Oh, I'd completely forgotten that. But yeah, apparently they appear in a number of different forms. I mean, this is a very particular kind with this sort of barb strap. And you get them sometimes with chains as well. But the term apparently also refers to the actor wearing a hair shirt as a way of mortifying the, the flesh as well. It's basically anything that's designed to cause you kind of physical discomfort for religious or spiritual reasons, I think. Yeah, so definitely the first place I was introduced was the Da Vinci Code, because the, uh, there is a particular branch of Catholicism that uh, believes in the mortification of the flesh, which I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but is referenced in, in the same book as well. Is it Opus Dei? Yes, that's the one. That's not peculiar to Opus Dei. I think that's a general Catholic thing. Mm -hmm. But I think they embrace it more than others is what I was, what I was getting at. Meanwhile, Esway arrives at the crumbling and dusty Villa Graps and meets its owner, She's a barrel of last too. <laughs> Baroness Graps, who lives in isolation, is unhappy to receive a visitor and claims not to have seen the inspector. She then heads back into her room where she stares, as many of the characters in this film do. They stare lots. Shivering into a mirror, hearing the cries of dead souls. Oh, and she is 
absolutely Miss Havisham, isn't she, in, in terms of the presentation? All right, she's not wearing a wedding dress, but that's clearly the inspiration here. Turning to leave, Esway follows a child's laughter and encounters a young girl dressed in white who introduces herself as Melissa. Before they can have a meaningful conversation, Melissa walks around a corner and disappears, leaving only her laughter and a bouncing ball. <laughs> Melissa? Melissa? I'd forgotten until I watched this again how much that ball comes into play. And this has become a real trope in horror since then. When we talked about the changeling before, I talked about how the ball bouncing down the stairs had been used in so many horror films since then. And I'd kind of half hatched in mind that the changeling is where it originated, but this is like 15 years before then. I think this may be the origin of that trope. Certainly got picked up later in The Shining as well, because you've got that mm. ball that keeps coming back. Yeah, and it's certainly something I've used in the scenario as well, just because it's such a strong image. We then cut to Monica, who is busy having a nightmare in which she is being visited by a sinister porcelain doll. When she wakes up, the doll is sitting there on the end of her bed. Naturally enough, this freaks her the hell out and she jumps out of bed and runs out of the house in terror, where, conveniently enough, she bumps into the doctor. Oddly enough, foreshadowing the likes of Child's Play, uh, the scene in Poltergeist with the dolls, mm. the Annabelle series. There's so many that are riffed off bloody fucking dolls. <laughs> yeah, though I, th I doubt this was the origin of the creepy doll trope. I, I think mm. they've been around for long before then. Yeah, it's, it's just another one that you can add to that checklist of what features in this. Oh, yeah. Esway suggests that Monica take a room at the inn. As the two travel... The Doctor tries to reassure Monica that there is nothing supernatural happening and the town is merely in the grip of superstition. I call bullshit. When they arrive at the inn, Esway discovers Nadine, the daughter, in the grip of a violent fever. Examining her, he finds the silice and removes it, remonstrating with the parents that this could kill their daughter. Stripped of this protection, Nadine awakes from the fever later that night and, compelled by the ghost, impales herself on a candlestick with fatal consequences. This isn't as explicit a scene as we see in the beginning, but I, I, mean, I think it's quite creepy the way that you've got this girl who is fighting against it, clearly terrified, and there's this spike protruding from the candelabra, and she's just slowly walking onto it, trying to fight against it. I found that actually quite a disturbing scene. You can tell this is maybe where the budget was lacking because they didn't go for a, a Fulci eye-impaling moment. <laughs> I think it's also the fact that it was 1966. I mean, this is just before Italian horror got really gory. That's more kind of early to mid-70s. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of a, a midway point there. With the body count rising, Monica and Dr. Esway continue to search for the cause. 
investigating what seems to be another sudden burial going on at the cemetery, because they see some lights down there, they head down and come across, wrapped up, the body of Inspector Kruger, who has apparently shot himself in the head. This is one thing that, I don't know about you two, I find myself using in games quite often, which is you start off perhaps in a situation where there are a few authority figures or people the investigators can turn to for support or information or whatever and find ways of taking them out of action so that the investigators are forced to stand more on their own two feet, are forced more into direct action. Is that a technique either of you ever use? Not very often. I tend towards more of a different approach that gets to the same ends, though. That whereas you delight in the statistic glee of uh, having all the people <laughs> killed around the PCs and having them removed, for me, I'm just more stingy. I'll just make sure that they're the only people that can deal with the problem for the first instance. So if they want to try and create that support network in play, good on them. But otherwise, no, I'm, I'm more stingy in saying you are the people that have got to deal with this. As the inspector's death has left the investigation without a lead, Esway and Monica turn to the Burgermeister for assistance. They eventually convince him to share an info dump, in which he reveals that the town is under a curse. Here is your major exposition dump for the story, folks. <laughs> well, we get a few exposition dumps, but this is like the first one that gives part of the story. The curse is tied to the ghost of Melissa, the daughter of Baroness Graps. She haunts the town, appearing to those who speak of her or the curse, driving them to suicide. Additionally, the Burgomaster says that he has an important document that relates to all this and, and relates particularly to Monica, and he has to give it to her, but it's stored at his house. So they all head off to the Burgomaster's house, and he goes up to the attic to get it, and then you get this scene where he goes into the cabinet where this is, and sure enough, there is the letter, but it's Melissa standing there in the cabinet holding the letter, and he backs off in terror, and picks up this, I guess it's a sickle. I wasn't quite sure what kind of implement that was. It looked somewhere between a sickle and a knife. Yeah, it was kind of odd, wasn't it? I can't remember quite. I remember thinking it was a bit weird. Yeah. And he grabs that off the ball and clearly does away with himself. And of course, you know, our protagonists are downstairs realise that there's something going on, smash the door down, and not only find the dead body of the Burgomaster there, but find the smouldering remains of this document. This is, I guess, a fairly classic technique in mysteries of here is this big clue, here's something that's going to give you a revelation, but you're always snatched away at the last minute, building up tension. It's, it's like that classic trope, which I must admit I absolutely fucking hate, but you see an awful lot in thrillers where someone is phoned up by a contact who says, I've got something really important to tell you, but I've got to tell you face to face. I can't tell you over the phone. And you know as soon as they say that, that they're going to be dead before they get to the meeting. Mm. You just know it. Yeah, I, I find that a very bullshit trope. I hate that fucking thing coming up, so I'd never use it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this, I think, is a slightly better handled version of that. I mean, it's still a variant of it, but I think it's handled better here in that it it still feels tantalising, but it doesn't feel as, I don't know, gratuitous, I guess. When Esway and Monica return to the inn, the innkeeper chases them off with a shotgun. 
they've upgraded from pitchforks. The pair tried to stir the town into action only by ringing the church bells, but to no avail. Monica is drawn to the cemetery where she discovers Melissa's tomb and a secret passage that leads them to the Villa Graps. Yeah, this is really going for like every gothic trope, isn't it? She's drawn to the tomb by this vision. She encounters this gravestone and then it leads to a secret passage that goes through all these these dark cobwebbed corridors and up into the villa. This time, the Baroness seems happy to receive visitors. She greets Monica as her daughter. Melissa, she reveals, was Monica's older sister. She was killed during a drunken festival some 20 years before, when she ran into the road to retrieve her ball and was trampled by a horse. No one came to her aid. Despite being dead, Melissa joins in this little family reunion, appearing in her bedroom amidst all the creepy porcelain dolls that she's got around there. Everything is just as it was that day. Just look, it was 20 years ago. Her playthings are all here. She was such a happy, carefree little thing. She liked to look at herself. But she wasn't tall enough so she had to stand on tiptoe to reach the mirror. This was her favorite doll. Nothing has been touched since Melissa arranged it. She had a place for everything. She was very meticulous, you know. At this point, Hesway realises that Monica has vanished, but he hears her calling for him from somewhere within the villa, and of course, he runs off to find her. Passing through a room, Hesway finds himself trapped in a strange loop. Every time he runs out of the room, the doorway he passes through takes him right back to where he started. More weirdly, he starts seeing himself running out of the room up ahead and eventually catches up to his doppelganger, only to recall in terror when the figure turns to face him. Yeah, I think this is probably my favourite moment of the film. Barva, as, as we mentioned in that introduction there, improvised a lot of this. And this feels like the kind of thing that he probably would have improvised. We've seen plenty of, I think, examples in cinema and television of people getting trapped in a loop and going through, say, a doorway and coming out in the same room as they just walked out of. But it's that bit where he starts seeing himself up ahead and then runs up and eventually manages to put a hand on his own shoulder and the figure turns around and it's him that really did feel like something out of a nightmare yeah i really like that bit almost echoes in a way of the last episode of the original series of twin peaks with um mm. cooper running through the black lodge and eventually or being chased by his own doppelganger mm. yeah i kind of sat up and uh took notice at that point yeah i know lynch is another director who's hugely influenced by barber Esway backs up into a painting of the villa it is covered with spiderwebs, and he finds himself trapped within them. As he flails around, Esway finds himself transported to the outside of the villa, as depicted in the painting. Understandably, he passes out. 
And yeah, these two scenes back to back, the doppelganger scene and this falling backwards into the painting and so on. Up to this point, we've had a film that's that's been pretty gothic and has had some weird bits in it, like the coin of the heart and so on. But this just goes straight into outright surrealism. I know, Matt, I mean, you're particularly fond of doing moments like that in games, aren't mm. you? Where it's that feeling that suddenly you've gone from playing in what is perhaps a, a relatively rational world to something that is just absolutely batshit crazy. Oh, yes. This is definitely my kind of scene. <laughs> I think it's, it's a fantastic trick to use if you can pull it off. We talked about this, I guess, a bit in the weirdness episode not too long back. But do you think that specifically something like this, where it's going so strange with him falling into the painting and finding himself outside and so on, do you think that's a kind of tonal shift or narrative shift that players would buy into or is it going to take you out of the game do you think you could pull that off as a gm i think if it leads to a satisfying conclusion and it would normally be a shift that i would do that would move a scenario into its end game hmm. that it very much sets the tone this is what it's really been all about therefore this is what hmm. it's going to continue to be rather than just in this case it's a couple of scenes rather than then carrying through to the end that's a little more truncated than i would personally go for but it still works quite nicely but it's not how i would do it mm. when esway wakes up he's there with ruth who is busy <laughs> preparing to insert a silver coin into her dead lover's heart into the burgomaster's heart this she reveals as a local custom that ensures those who meet a violent death do not rise from the grave ruth then swears vengeance upon the Baroness for killing the man she loved. I was reading a little bit about the original script for Kill Baby Kill because, you know, as, as we've mentioned, the original script was fairly light and Barver improvised an awful lot on it. But apparently he, he removed some elements as well during filming and it, it sounds like this might have been a callback to that in that I think initially that there was supposed to be people actually rising from the dead if this didn't happen, that this was supposed to stop the the dead from coming back. It sounds like he dropped that bit because it was a bit too similar to stuff that he'd done in some of his other films. I guess it still works there as a piece of folklore embedded within the film. But yeah, it does feel like sort of a, an appendix that's, that's been left there. Following in info dump tradition, Ruth relates some important history. Following Melissa's death, everyone in the villa started dying from Harath. Two servants smuggled the younger daughter from the villa to protect the girl, raising her as her own. Monica grew up unaware of her actual parentage. We were talking about in the castle of Otranto in the previous episode how you've got all these revelations about, oh, actually, I'm descended from so-and-so, oh, actually... I'm not who I thought I was, or you're, you're not who you thought you were. I'm Spartacus. <laughs> but this just feels like another classic gothic trope finding its way in there, doesn't it? You've got to hit those tick boxes. <laughs> Baroness Graups reveals to Monica that she is a medium who calls upon her dead daughter 
Although she claims to have no control over what the spirit does, Monica flees, but becomes entranced as the spiral staircase she is descending takes a turn for the psychedelic. Monica then awakens in Melissa's tomb, her dead sister glaring at her with evil intent. This is a classic example of knowing the summon, but not the bind spell. <laughs> but I love the cinematography of that scene on the spiral staircase as well, with the shot going straight up and the, the way the different layers of it are lit in different colours. Like so much of this film, it looks absolutely fucking marvellous. Meanwhile, Ruth arrives at the villa to take her revenge upon Baroness Graps. Once again, in conversation, well, angry conversation, heated conversation, the Baroness claims to be an innocent victim just being used by the spirits and her daughter's spirit in particular. Ruth, however, is having none of this, insisting that it is the Baroness herself who is behind the curse. You should have learnt the bind spell as well. I mean, that's the point. It, it is the Baroness who's behind all of mm. this. I mean, she's been pretending, oh, yeah, oh, it's actually my daughter and I have no control. But she does. She, she admits to it. Mm. This is her doing. This is her revenge. Running back into the house and along the secret passage, Sway tries to save Monica but is thwarted by an iron door. And boy, do I know about doors getting in the way of games. Meanwhile, Ruth and the Baroness fight with Ruth strangling the Baroness, but not before the old woman stabs her with a fire poker. Yeah, stabs her in the heart. There's a lot I really like about this film, but the resolution of it, it just feels very perfunctory. Mm. You one-shot killed my big bad, you bastard! Maybe they both rolled zero ones on their, their fuck. That's why you give them flesh ward. This is why you give them armour. You don't have something that can do this. <laughs> on the other hand, it is just an old woman. And I guess strangling her probably is a pretty simple and straightforward resolution in that respect. But yeah, yes, it, it does feel a little bit anticlimactic. It's kind of the less fun equivalent of Indiana Jones pulling out his gun and shooting the guy with the swords. At least that was funny. <laughs> this is kind of, oh, blink and you miss it. Oh, well. With the Baroness dead, Melissa starts to fade. Esway manages to get through the door just in time to stop Monica falling to her death from a balcony. Her revenge complete, Ruth collapses dead on the Baroness's body. Monica and Esway flee the villa and walk off into the sunrise arm in arm. The end. And none too soon. <laughs> I was going to say, thank fucking God. <laughs> this isn't a long film. This is, what, an hour and 20 minutes. It felt longer. <laughs> it felt longer. Did you know this show is edited? But I can say fuck, right? Uh, carry on. Anyway. If you want to hear the hosts mess up and waffle on even more, just chip in a dollar a show at patreon.com slash goodfriendsofjacksonalives, where all backers gain access to uncut versions of the show. I knew you didn't like it, Paul, because you'd been complaining about it before we started recording, but I would have thought this would be your kind of thing, Matt, with ghosts and gothic horror and creepy atmosphere and so on. No, I enjoyed the story. And I think from a technical aspect, it is a very interesting and very good film. But I found the actual enjoyment of the film was something else entirely. Oh, what's that? 
Because at one point, I didn't fall asleep. I actually managed to get through the film in one go, but somehow I blanked out over half an hour of what actually happened. Oh, wow. It washed over me completely, and I thought, holy fuck, the last time I looked at the timer, it said like 32 minutes or whatever. The next time I looked at it, I was over the hour mark. I'm thinking, well, what's happened? There's nothing that's happening in the intervening scenes. What's going on here? And yet it just completely blanked me. Just nothing seemed to grab my attention or hold it at all. But going back over the synopsis, it is actually an interesting story. There is definitely a lot here for me to like, but I think it's more on a technical level rather than as a film. Maybe if it was something that they had a bit better production value, if they had more that actively didn't feel like improvisation, then it would have gripped a bit more. But yeah, something just did not come together for me when watching it. Oh, wow. My reaction was pretty much the the opposite to that. I don't think it's necessarily a fantastically coherent bit of storytelling. There is a lot of it where, yeah, I mean, Barva is clearly throwing stuff at the ball and seeing what sticks. And as I said, I thought the resolution's quite weak. But in terms of the actual storytelling, the cinematic storytelling, I found it utterly compelling. When I watched it the second time, this time round, for writing the review, it didn't grab me quite as hard as it did when I watched it for the first time about 10 years ago. But even then, there's still this dreamlike atmosphere that drew me in in a way that a more measured, rational form of storytelling doesn't. And I guess this is what I like about a lot of Italian cinema, that Italian cinema or Italian horror films in particular of this era, are very much about creating that feeling of dream and that feeling of nightmare, rather than, oh, here is a a neat story with a a neat resolution and stuff like that. It is much more, here are images straight out of dreams that, Mm. that will mess with you. On that level, I find this an absolutely remarkable film, it really does feel like a dream. I can certainly appreciate that aspect, and I can certainly appreciate how it's constructed. But when you mention about other Italian horror films of maybe this and maybe slightly later for the example I'm thinking of, I had exactly the same reaction with Deep Red. Oh, right. That when I tried watching that, that I had easily half of the film in the middle where I just blanked out completely. When I finally took notice of what was going on, the film was nearly over. Hmm. That is weird. The beginning lures you in, but then the middle is kind of just met and it's just there. And then finally it becomes interesting again at the end. Hmm. I wonder, I mean, I think it is this kind of storytelling that's designed to sort of slip under your conscious mind and just tickle your subconscious directly. I mean, maybe that, for whatever reason, doesn't work for you. For me, that is the main appeal of Italian horror at this period. It affects me in a way that other cinema just doesn't, that it does bypass my defences and just gets to me on a subconscious level. You know, this gives me an idea for a scenario. You could almost tie this in (laughs) with something like, particularly with the Cold War era, so do something for World War Cthulhu Cold War, which I'm hoping Chaosium will eventually uh, re-release as they brought the rights to it from Cubicle 7. Have a film that's deliberately been put together by the intelligence services, so it's been funded by one of the organisations, maybe SIS, maybe Stasi, maybe whatever, where it's deliberately designed as a method of brainwashing. You get people to sit down and watch this film, and they just zone out in the (laughs) midsection. And in that time, their mind is 
is so pliable that you can implant sleeper commands in them, turn them into a literal sleeper agent, like the Manchurian candidate, and then mm. release them back out into the world. And what happens if one of these tapes manages to escape into a mainstream audience? <laughs> and if it's got some force and mythos has perverted this? I think I have a scenario mm. to write now. But also in terms of this being an expression of uh, the Gothic, I can't think of too many other films I've seen that have managed to pack as many elements of the Gothic in. I mean, we were talking in the last episode about how the Gothic is an aesthetic and that it relies on certain elements or certain motifs that bring it to life. And I think here, the isolation, that creepy ruined town, the the frightened townsfolk, the feeling of dread, a curse that's over it, the, the height emotions, the sinister backstory and the literal and metaphorical ghost of that tragedy involving Melissa that's coming back that is laying over everyone. That feels like, to me, the purest expression of the gothic that I've ever seen in a film. Gotta have a creepy kid. You've got to. <laughs> yes. Would you agree, Matt, is a good example of a gothic film? Yeah, I'd, I'd say it does tick a hell of a lot of the boxes. It's just a shame it wasn't as enjoyable a piece, but I say on a technical level, I think it ticks a hell of a lot of those boxes. Because mm. I was looking at like lists of, of gothic films to see you know what other ones there were, and as we said in the previous episode, there was a lot. You know, when you look it up, there's um. Well, let me just Google it now. That's so the big, the more recent big one is Crimson Peak. But... Yeah, I mean that's fairly recent. Yeah, Crimson Peak just didn't grab me at all. I really wanted to like it. And there were a lot of elements of it I liked, but my reaction to it was you know, almost what you were describing there, Matt, with your reaction to Kill Baby Kill. Mm. It felt like it washed over me. There were lots of scenes in there and motifs and you know, the atmosphere kind of worked for me, but there wasn't anything that really stuck with me afterwards. I always thought the film was missold as being like a supernatural horror film. And so I was expecting that. And consequently, as I'm waiting for it, I'm getting bored waiting for it. And I kind of zone out, which to some extent is the same thing I had with um, season one of True Detective, because I was sold on that being cosmic horror. And I got bored shitless watching mm. that because it was not what I wanted <laughs> to watch. But you have the list of films. So uh, there's The Witch. There's things like Let the Right One In, which I really see as being gothic per se. It has a vampire. There you go. I guess it's also the emotional intensity aspect of it there that that is about sort of heightened adolescent emotions and so on that you could almost argue, but yeah. Seems a stretch. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. Deliverance. I mean, I don't really see that. Banjos are not on that tick list. I mean, there are some on there, you know, that it would definitely fit, you know, Frankenstein and Dracula and so on. Angel Heart, you know, that would that kind of, that's more like Southern Gothic, I suppose. The film is, the book certainly isn't. Mm. Okay. Um, I've, I've only seen the film. Highly recommend the book. The book is fucking amazing. But Crimson Peak was uh, the one that I ended up watching because I've seen some Del Toro films that I really like and some that I'm not so keen on. Yeah, I mean, Crimson Peak... It seemed to have quite a few of the elements. And also, like you were saying in the last episode, Matt, about the, the sort of strong sort of female roles in it, it has that. But again, not that great a film. It was kind of, hmm. I don't know if it was the dialogue, it was just a bit wooden, it was just a bit, a lot of preposterous things in it. 
it almost fell for the Tim Burton trap that I find, which is something where I, I see a film with his name on it and I guarantee I know what I'm going to see when I go into it because he is all <laughs> style over substance. And there is no meat yeah. in any film of his that he's ever put together that I've liked, with the exception of probably Sleepy Hollow, but that's that he is adapting an existing story. Edward has some substance. But again, he didn't write that. Ah, oh, which I've not seen. Yeah, it's, it's a biopic of the director, isn't it? Yeah. But yeah, it's where he has his own little creative vision. It's always the same fucking visual style. Mm. It leaves me so bloody cold because there is no there's no emphasis put on the story. It's all, hey, look at the flashy little lights, yeah, and colours. But have you seen Pan's Labyrinth? I mean, that's like Del Toro's best film, I would say. It's, it's good, but it's... So you're, not, you're not a fan, though? Or? It was subtitled, so I, it was always going to be a hard watch for me. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. In terms of Del Toro and gothic cinema, yes, in terms of gothic tropes and uh, gothic tale, Crimson Peak is probably the closest he's got. But I'd say that mm. in terms of combining gothic atmosphere with a much more compelling film, I'd say either Kronos or The Devil's Backbone are much better examples in that respect. I love both of those films, and they both have, I think, strong elements of the gothic to them. Yeah, I'd say I would very much agree with um, Devil's Backbone, yeah. Yeah, it's got that kind of, um, is it like a monastery or something, like an old castle monastery place? Well, it's an old school, an orphanage, isn't it, I think? Orphanage, yeah, yeah. There was one thing I uh, remember that wouldn't be an interesting talking point, which was, apart from the side, the how many different ways you can say the title. Apparently, uh, Paul discovered there is a quite large difference between how you can say the script and how it can appear in the subtitles for this film. Yeah, I had the... Well, it, you know, it started off and it's in Italian language, so I, um, I kind of thought, well, I'll put the dubbed on. And then I put the English subtitles on as well, just, I don't know why. Just, <laughs> so I thought, well, I'll listen to it in, I'll put the English subtitles on and listen to it in the, in the original language and just see how, it, how the two vocal performances compare. And listening to the, the English language and the English subtitles, it wasn't just that they were saying the same things, just slightly phrased differently, as you might expect. It was in places very different. Yeah. I should have written down some examples, but I didn't. Um, but in places, yeah, really radically quite different. I didn't realise that myself until last night when I was just going over certain bits and refreshing my memory and updating the script. I had both the English uh, dialogue and the English subtitles on before. I just watched it in Italian with the, the English subtitles. And yeah, I mean, it, in places, you're right, it, it felt like, you know, not quite a different story, but certainly, you know, no. being told in a very different way. Yeah, quite different. I'm almost tempted to go back and watch the entire thing again with the dub just to see how different that is. I'm not sure how much money you'd have to pay me to do that. <laughs> it's torturously uh, dull. But I think in general with Italian films of that era, I'm normally a great one for wanting to watch subtitled films because I want to hear the original performances. But with Italian cinema at the, the 60s and the 70s and even 80s, 
I don't think that's very important because you're almost never hearing the original dialogue anyway, that it's all done with ADR, because in a lot of cases, they'd get international casts in and they'd have people speaking of their own languages. And so you might have actors speaking in three different languages in the scene, just delivering stuff, and then it would all be dubbed in whichever language afterwards. This is why their lips don't match. Exactly, yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah. So, it, you know, it really doesn't matter the way that it does with a lot of other films. And if you ever want to see that portrayed on film, go watch Barbarian Sound Studio. Mm. You're listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media presences. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash goodfriendsofjacksonelias. Thank you for listening. It is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. Thank you to you, first of all, for listening to this podcast. Thank you to anyone who's ever backed us. Thank you to that creepy little ghost that's standing in the corner watching us as we record. And we have a number of new people to thank by name. Yep, thanks very much to Jacob James. And thank you very much to Phil the Sheep. It was definitely not a bad idea for you to back us on this and thank you very much to Sherlock. And thanks to Paul. Not me, another one. <laughs> Can you prove that, Paul? And thank you very much to Hangfire. And thank you to Jeff B. And thanks to Vivian Dunstan. And thank you very much to Gary Bromain. And thank you to Mark Deacon. And thanks to Johnny Dickoff Fagerberg. And thank you very much to the singular Garen. And thank you very much to Andrew Hudson. And thanks very much to Do Do Do. Or Do Do Do. Could be any combination of those. Ah, oh, his name I recognise. Thank you very much to Joe Webb. Ah, yes, yes, a very regular presence on our Discord server. And thank you very much to John Stack. And thanks to Sophie Lee. And last but not least, thank you very much to Derek Robertson. And if you are enjoying The Good Friends of Jackson Elias, we would love it if you let other people know whether this means leaving a review somewhere where reviews can be found, just mentioning it to people you like, or, or even people you hate on social media will take anyone, or perhaps just going around and ringing the bells in your town and attracting everyone's attention, warning them of the, the mortal threat that faces them if they don't listen. You just lurk in someone's closet holding a document and just stare at them and compel them to listen to the podcast. I've got something to tell you. I'd like to record it. I'm afraid Matt Nixon died. Oh, shit. Oh, no. oh fuck. When was that? It happened this afternoon. Holy shit. Oh, bugger. I just got a message from, uh, from Nick. Oh, God, I'm really, I'm really sorry to hear that. Fuck. It went through my head to go and visit him in hospital on Friday because... I didn't even know he was ill. Shit. Oh, he's been in hospital for weeks, yeah. Over a month. Mm. Oh, sorry, yeah. I mean, this is me not using Facebook. I didn't realise he was ill. Right. Necrotic liver, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, there was there was something of, of that. And um, so he says, uh, while he's been quite ill and was undergoing tests as an inpatient recently, it didn't seem this, that this was on the card. So it wasn't like at death's door. 
they let him out, didn't they? Or they were saying they were going to send him home. Yeah, they let him out, and then it says uh, he had a fall this week and was uh, was taken in. Um, but this it was quite unexpected. As that was very much the impression I got from his posts. You know, it was like, yeah, I'm in here for more bloody tests. He kept giving everyone regular updates and just complaining about how long the wait was to do anything. Yeah, because I, I went down, you know, so I went down to London on Friday and had lunch with Emily. And I was thinking, oh, I'll probably have time to, um, I looked up where it was on the on the map and I thought I could call in and see him. But then David wanted me to help set up the stand Friday afternoon. So I thought, oh, well. He can't have been that old as well. I mean, he must be, what, about 50 or so or less? No, I think he's turned 50. I think he was a yeah. few years younger than us. Yeah. Um, but I think probably 52, 53. So. <sighs> mm. God, I'm sorry to hear that. I really like Matt. If it's all right with you, I'd like to dedicate this episode to our friend Matt Nixon, who died earlier this afternoon whilst we were recording on Sunday the 4th of December 2022. Our thoughts are obviously with everyone else who knew him, and he was a great presence on the British convention scene. I, I worked with him on a number of projects, and I always found him marvellous company. I shall miss him. Yeah, I mean, he attended mine and Tiff's wedding. I played in, I don't know how many of his games at conventions. He was in plenty of mine. I still remember a good memory of uh, feeding him uh, chili con carne late one evening after he came back to my lodge drunk at, uh, well, I think it was IndyCon years and years ago. Shit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a sombre note to end on. <laughs> yeah. Uh. Well, we'll leave it there. You've been listening to The Good Friends with Jackson Elias. It's a goodbye from me. And cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemous Tomes.com mm-hmm.